Hello, welcome back to the Loop Podcast. I'm Dr. Sanan Zahidi, your host for today's episode, which is part of our second season. Today is our roundtable review, which focuses on hot topics, controversial discussions, and the humanistic side of our profession. Our focus for today's discussion is on the dogmas of hand surgery. I'm very excited to introduce my special guest, Dr. Robert Zabo, Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at University of California, Davis, former Chief of the Hand and Upper Extremity Division, past president of the American Society for Surgery of the Hand, and a member of multiple editorial boards for various surgical journals. Welcome, Dr. Zabo, to the Leap Podcast. I definitely didn't cover everything, so can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I'd be happy to. I was uh, born in New York City, came to California 39 years ago, and have been here since. Um, I took a sabbatical and received a Master's of Public Health degree in epidemiology from Berkeley and developed an interest in evidence-based medicine and hence an interest in dispelling dogma. I am the Hand Surgery Fellowship Director for UC Davis, where I've trained fellows from both orthopedics and plastic surgery, as well as one former cardiac surgeon over the past 38 years. I'm very happy to be here with you today. Thank you. That's very impressive. And I know we have a lot of listeners who are either currently applying for hand fellowship or are interested in hand surgery. Um, And the hand fellowship match is coming up on May 5th. So do you have any advice for the applicants currently in the process of interviewing and trying to make their rank list? Well, I have to say to Pick the right match for you individually. Not every fellowship offers exactly the same experience. Know the style of learning that works best for you and what kind of mentorship uh, will help enhance your future goals. Talk to the current fellows and residents in the program. Uh, The interview should work both ways. You interview them as well as they interview you. Thanks. And then also another feedback we've gotten from plastic surgery residents applying to hand fellowship. Do you have any advice for the plastic surgery residents out there that are listening on what they can do to stand out um, either in the interview or during the application process? Well, I can't speak for every one of my peers, but as I've said, I've trained both plastics and orthopedic uh, fellows over the years. Um, But I would say that there's always a little bit of reluctance um, with a plastic surgeon's goals as to what their involvement will be in hand surgery. So most of us in in the orthopedic uh, program are looking for a plastic or orthopedic resident who wants to be, in the future, a total hand surgeon, not 50% of their practice is hand surgery. And it seems that it's more common in plastic residents uh, that they do a hand fellowship to, to complement their practice in plastic surgery. Uh, and that becomes you less less attractive than if you really want to be 100% hand surgeon. Good to know. Well, thank you. And before we jump into the discussion, I think everybody's thinking, Dr. Zabo, what is a dogma? Well, I'll discuss more with you. You'll know after the discussion. <laughs> but a dogma is an authoritative principle, belief, or statement of opinion, especially one considered to be absolutely true and indisputable, regardless of evidence or without evidence to support it. It is usually applied to some strong belief which its believers are not willing to discuss rationally, uh, often referred in religion. We know there's a lot of dogma in religion. Unfortunately, dogma has come 
to, to underscore surgery and medicine too. And that's what we'll talk about today. Awesome. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about avoiding dogma. I have nothing to disclose, no financial disclosures here. So dogma is the established belief or doctrine held by a religion, ideology, or any kind of organization thought to be authoritative and not to be disputed, doubted, or diverged from. Pseudo-axioms are like pseudoscience are like pseudoscience are false principles or rules often handed down from generation to generation of medical providers and accepted without serious challenge or investigation. David Sackett, a very famous epidemiologist, said that half of what you'll learn in medical school will be shown to be either dead wrong or out of date within five years of your graduation. The trouble is that nobody can tell you which half. <clears throat> Let me give you a short history of medicine. In 2000 BC, people said, here, eat this root. In 1000 BC, they would say that root is heathen. Say this prayer. In 1850 AD, that prayer is superstitious. Drink this potion. In 1940 AD, that potion to snake oil. Swallow this pill. In 1985, doctors would say that pill is ineffective. Take this antibiotic. And in 2000 AD, we'll be saying that antibiotic is artificial. Here, eat this root. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of Woody Allen, a fellow New Yorker. He did get a little bad reputation, particularly now with uh, the movements going on, but in, he had a very good movie in 1973 called Sleeper, where 21st century doctors considered deep fat steak, cream pies, and hot fudge as being healthy. And this was heresy at the time. Well, it turns out today we know that unprocessed chocolate is the world's number one antioxidant rich food. And thank goodness it's good for you. <laughs> Scientists get egg on their faces all the time these days. The whole business with cholesterol, how you watch your, your cholesterol, don't eat eggs, abandoning its caution about cholesterol-laden foods was put out 2015 in the Washington Post. You can eat cholesterol-laden food. It may not affect your cholesterol. So dogma comes from experts. As in this cartoon shows, in the 1950s, doctors would say, I keep, uh, it's because you eat vegetables and smoke too little that you keep coughing. And that's, that's really what was said. In fact, there were advertisements like I'm showing you here. This was in magazines. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. And even dentists, viceroys, filter the smoke. So you should smoke viceroys. It's good for your teeth. Well, this was in spite of it, Richard Dahl's paper in the 1950s in the British Medical Journal that smoking and lung cancer was largely ignored by the public at that time. In fact, Richard Dahl's landmark paper along with Austin um, um, Bradford, Austin Hill Bradford, uh, really made the basis for causation arguments in uh, what causes things in, in disease. And this is a, a, a critical point. So it's time to get out of the dogma house. How do you do that? Well, the challenge is to replace traditional treatments with more effective measures. For instance, bloodletting 
was a practice performed for centuries by barber surgeons for almost every ailment. Blood loss from repeated phlebotomies actually contributed to George Washington's death from epiglottitis. Though useless, the practice persisted into the early part of the 20th century. Let's look at a common thought these days. This is a critical look at the evidence for and against elective epinephrine use in the finger. Um, uh, when I was a resident, I was told never inject lidocaine with epinephrine. You could cause ischemic necrosis of the finger. Where did this come from? Medical ex texts continue to perpetuate the belief that epinephrine shouldn't be injected into the finger. All of the evidence for anti-adrenaline dogma comes from pre-1950 case reports of finger ischemia, which was always associated with procaine and cocaine mixed with epinephrine. The evidence that created the dogma that adrenaline should not be injected into the fingers is clearly not valid. And I'm showing you a paper here that was one of uh, Don Lalonde's first papers. And it led, it led, he led to rejecting this dogma and developing the whole technique of Lalonde surgery, wide awake, local, no tourniquet, uh, which I practice today and I've taught both the plastics and the, the uh, orthopedic residents. Uh, we inject epinephrine freely in the fingers, in the hands, and have not seen any problems, uh, nor is, has there been any problems documented, uh, with the exception of maybe a few, uh, but that's been documented with everything that's ever done to a human being. What about some other examples that we deal with uh, in hand surgery and orthopedic surgery? You know, medicine is the art of making adequate decisions based on inadequate information. And here you see glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate as, a, as very big products that are being used against pain and arthritis. Why should chondroitin sulfate be useful for these troubles? You know, the fact that your patient gets well does not prove that your diagnosis was correct, as Samuel Metzger said, or that what you did is responsible for making them better. So there's a tremendous result from placebo effects. And if you look at a meta-analysis of chondroitin uh, for the use of osteoarthritis in the hip or knee, which is the most common use, it's not prescribed because it's not uh, an FDA-approved drug, the large-scale, methodologically sound trials indicate that the symptomatic benefit is minimal or non-existent, and therefore, the use of it should be discouraged. This came out in 2007, yet I still get questions every week on should I be taking chondroitin sulfate for my arthritic hands. The benefit is unlikely and the use should be discouraged. It costs pa patients a lot of money out of pocket without any documented proof of use. So the important thing is never to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein said. We're faced with, as surgeons and doctors with an intellectual problem. There's variations in the perceptions with regards to experts. How do we know their judgments are correct? And surgeons vary in their perceptions of outcomes of their procedures. So according to expert panels, a quarter to half of indications for which major procedures are done are inappropriate or at best equivocal. Experts themselves don't know what they're talking about. Major diseases are being treated on the flimsiest of evidence. So medical decisions are complicated. There are two ways to learn about outcomes. One is one's experience. That's an uncontrolled clinical series. That method is okay if the outcomes are obvious and immediate. 
and the treatments cause dramatic changes in the outcomes. For instance, here's a paper in, B in the British Medical Journal that says parachute use to prevent death and major trauma related to gravitational challenge, systemic review of randomized controlled trials. So this is making fun a little bit about how we're so emphasizing randomized controlled trials. There's never been a randomized controlled trial of parachute use. And people have jumped out of planes and survived, so it's not 100% mortality. But we all know that, but this is a personal experience. You know that a parachute uh, is going to, by observational studies, or just our own observation, uh, is going to be effective in preventing you crashing into the, into the ground. It's an immediate response. So you don't need a randomized prospective study. You don't need advanced um, science to learn that it's a good idea to use a parachute. So let's not be ridiculous. The second way to learn about uh, making medical decisions uh, is with clinical research. And this is a systematic assignment of treatments and observation of outcomes. This is what evidence-based medicine is about, and we now call it evidence-based practice. So this is different than eminence-based medicine. Evidence is not eminence. Eminence-based medicine, the more senior the colleague is, the less importance he or she placed on the need for anything as mundane as evidence. Experience, it seems, is worth any amount of evidence. These colleagues have a touching faith in clinical experience, which has been defined as making the same mistakes with increasing confidence over an impressive number of years. The eminent physician's white hair and balding pate are called the halo effect. So what, what evidence-based medicine is, is a term coined by Gordon, uh, by Gordon Giat in 1990 in a document for applicants to medical school at his residency in McMaster University in Canada. And he described evidence-based medicine as an attitude of enlightened skepticism toward the application of diagnostic, therapeutic, and prognostic technologies. The practice of evidence-based medicine is, and this is very important, the integration of individual clinical expertise. You cannot discount your individual experience. With the best available external clinical evidence from systematic research, and you must take into account patients' values and their expectations. So the best practice comes from the best evidence. And the best, there's a hierarchy of evidence, and we now, in, in most of our better journals, uh, we are asked to rate our studies, our research, with what level of evidence we're providing. And level one is the, is the highest level, large randomized trials. Level five is that is more of an eminence-based medicine. You're, you're relying on your expert opinion, uh, with or without critical appraisal. And then the rest you can see, and you probably all know these things. So randomized controlled trials, in theory, they're the gold standard of study design validity because randomization and blinding minimizes bias. And that's the goal, is to minimize your bias. But other research studies can provide worthwhile evidence, and randomized trials are not without problems, as I will show you. So how applicable is the data to the real world? The treatment of patients is based on evidence and information gained from research. 
while generalizability may be the definition and cornerstone of research, next time you review a protocol, ask yourself, with the inclusion and exclusion criteria in this study, is the information from this trial really going to be generalizable? So does, you, does it represent the target population of what you're looking at? So another point to be made, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, is, is academic medicine for sale? So with a lot of these randomized trials, and I will give you an example, researchers serve as consultants to companies whose products they are studying. The researchers join advisory boards and speakers bureaus. They enter into pa pa patent and royalty arrangements. They promote drugs and devices at company-sponsored symposiums and allow themselves to be plied with expensive gifts and trips to luxurious settings. Many also have equity interest in the companies. So beware of randomized trials also, because the relation between industry-backed research and positive conclusions of clinical trials, the drugs are recommended as the treatment of choice three times more often if the research is funded by a for-profit versus a nonprofit organization. And researchers supported by industry often sign gag clauses limiting freedom to disseminate information regarding ineffective or dangerous outcomes. So here's an example. If you're in plastic surgery, you may not be reading the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, but it's considered the major journal for orthopedic surgeons. And this is a, this is a study that was written in JBJS 2007, a randomized controlled multi-center double-blind placebo trial looking at radial epicondylitis, better known as tennis elbow, the use of botulinum toxin, better known as Botox. The conclusions of this study was local injection of botulinum toxin is a beneficial treatment. The treatment can be performed as an outpatient setting does not impair the patient's ability to work. So this is fantastic. You can get away, you can get rid of the wrinkles in your face and solve your tennis elbow all with one trip to the plastic surgeon. <laughs> now, same this this study was supported um, by doctors who were receiving grants in excess of $10,000 from Ipsen Pharma. Ipsen Pharma makes Botox. Let's look at another study. Same journal, JBJS, botulinum toxin injection in the treatment of tennis elbow. Another double-blind randomized controlled study found no significant difference between the two groups receiving placebo or Botox. No commercial entity was paid or directed or agreed to pay or direct. The authors of this study didn't receive anything. So there you have it. Which study are you going to put credence in? So many times existing medical dogma has been proven entirely wrong with the passage of time. So we have in, in, in um, orthopedic surgery, a metal-on-metal -metal hip replacement came out prosthesis where the head of the of the hip and the cup of the hip were both made out of metal and it was pushed to being used in younger patients and it was uh, pushed as being safer that people could get back to work get back to athletics and here's an athlete michael ricks who won a triathlon 12 weeks after his hip, hip implant um he had hip arthritis at age 40 well all of these things turned out to be huge problems 
young active men seemed to be ideal for these, but all of a sudden we started seeing huge problems with neurologic problems, with hearing loss, visual impairment, cardiovascular problems, and endocrine. All these metal prostheses turned out to be a disaster. I advise all of you to have a look on Netflix to find this, find this movie, The Bleeding Edge, because it goes into the metal on metal as well as mesh and other products that you're going to be familiar with in, in your surgical um, practice. And it tells you how companies and people involved with companies push products, uh, which then caused a, a lot of harm. How about something very simple? No, nothing too uh, stressful for your, for your brains this morning. Sammy, stop cracking your knuckles. It's a bad habit. How many times have you heard that? You shouldn't crack your knuckles. Well, does cracking your knuckles cause arthritis? This, is this a dogma? Um, and a lot of people think so. Well, it's interesting. A medical doctor named Donald Unger cracked the knuckles of his left hand every day for more than 60 years, but he did not crack the knuckles of his right hand, so he had his own control. And no arthritis or other ailments formed in either hand, earning him the 2009 Ig Nobel Prize in Medicine. Ig is, stands for Observed But Useful Knowledge. And this uh, Ig Award is, is um, supported by the Annals of Improbable Research. And so while this seems to be a, a kind of a, a funny situation, patients still ask, and they've asked me for years, and I'm sure they're going to ask you, is, is maybe less now with the information that we have, but, uh, and surgeons still debate, what, you know, what is knuckle cracking? What causes it? Why do it? Are knuckle crackers any different people? Are they more nervous? Are they, is it bad for you? Well, we studied this here at UC Davis uh, with a friend of mine, uh, a musculoskeletal radiologist, Bob Butan, and we did these ultrasound studies and we did clinical studies on patients uh, measuring their range of motion um, and doing questionnaires. And here's what we see in a, in a um, knuckle cracking situation. We see an ultrasound, this, the red lines there, the red arrows are showing you this bright flash erupting into the joint. And we figured it out listening to the sound and everything. That what it, what's happening is a bubble forms uh, in the uh, joint, and then it's the cracking of the bubble, the reabsorbing of the gas, the cavitation response that causes the noise of knuckle cracking. Now, is that bad for you? Well, we looked at there. There's clinically there was no difference between the knuckle crackers um, and the non-knuckle crackers. We looked at the history of their work activities, validated questionnaires. We did an orthopedic exam. There was, seemed to be a little bit increased laxity in the knuckle crackers. Well, this became very popular. It got picked up by our local magazine, or say newspaper, the Sacramento Bee. The media started reporting it. It made it to online, uh, where, of course, you get misquoted, uh, where knuckle cracking is actually harmless. This all came from this, if you see in the upper portion of the screen, the, uh, for the past 15 years, my nurse, Tanya Johnson, has always been driving me nuts, cracking her knuckles. I always told her to stop doing it, and, and it's bad for her. And uh, she told me, well, you better prove if it's bad or if it's not bad. Well, it turns out that we proved that it wasn't bad for you. So there you go. We dispelled the, the myth of dog, the dogma about knuckle cracking. Not earth-shattering, but another, another thing you can uh, take home with you. So good clinical medicine entails this healthy tension between traditional autonomy and recommended patterns of practice. We're all faced with practice policies and guidelines now. Guidelines are flexible. 
you have to remember, even though your hospitals and your societies are publishing guidelines, they keep revising and they should be flexible because they serve as a reference point or recommendations and not rigid criteria. Standards are inflexible and they define correct practice and they should be followed, but it takes a lot more to make a standard than it does to make a guideline. Whoever controls guidelines controls medicine, and that means they control the money. So medical and scientific progress depends on thinking outside the box. So recognition of shortcomings in the status quo and rigid adherence to guidelines may facilitate intellectual laziness and hinder innovation. So JAMA showed that 87% of authors of clinical practice guidelines have some form of interaction with industry. That's scary. Clinical practice guidelines created to influence the practice behaviors of vast numbers of physicians are often used as ingenious marketing tools. So what do I mean by that? So this article was published in the Wall Street Journal. Why is quality of care dangerous? Now, we're all facing this. I mean, our hospital, uh, we're asked, every one of us has to be involved in a quality measure. We're all looking at what makes uh, quality care. Um, and why can that be very dangerous? Well, you know, Congress will mandate that all Medicare payments be tied to quality metrics. This is the problem, the metrics. If you have an analysis of this uh, drive for better health care reveals a fundamental flaw in how quality is defined in the metrics applied. So at the time of this article came out, people made a, made a guideline. Hospitals were getting paid on how close that they monitored glucose on patients in ICUs. So they were looking at the glucose levels, um, you know, monitored in, in an ICU patient. And they were being paid more or less depending on how tight their control of their glucose was while in the ICU. Well, it turned out when, when all is said and done, when people looked at it, having very tight control, control of glucose in an ICU patient led to higher mortalities. And so it's not a question of, of which metric should you be measuring, if you're measuring mortality or are you measuring glucose levels. And this is where it becomes very dangerous. So evidence-based statistics, the, the value, the p-value fallacy, we put so much value on, on looking at p-values and saying that this is statistically significant. You know, this is a fallacy. So the probability of truth is a biologic plausibility. It has to be a cogent theory that's being tested and, you know, and put in respect to strength of previous results. None of these change the p-value, and the p-value does not need them for interpretation. So I'll give you an example. You can have two operations for wrist instability, procedure A and procedure B. If you look here, the DASH scores are really very close, 90 to 81. How could you say that's very different? Range of motion, 98 degrees versus 100 degrees in total range of motion of the wrist. That, that's an experimental error. Grip strength, 98 pounds compared to 100 pounds, also very, very small difference. Yet, if you do the statistical differences, all of these are statistically significant. So concluding that procedure A is better than procedure B is an empirical value judgment by the investigators or readers, only constrained by the certainty and accuracy of the measurements. And you can see here, you can really be led astray. 
So it's important to realize the statistical significance and substantive or biological or practical significance are not the same thing. A statistically significant finding may have absolutely no practical consequences. So I like the saying, which says, statistics are like a lamppost to a drunken man, poor for illumination, but good for support. So let me give you an example. I know at least somebody on this call is uh, being exposed to endoscopic carpal tunnel release <laughs> and being told that this is like what's the best thing in, in the world, yeah. a pure commodification. Here's a study that I actually was involved with, and I was doing endoscopic carpal tunnel release. If you look at the data that we collected at three, six, three weeks, six weeks, three months, and six months, and this the grip strength measured, now with, either with a knife means an open carpal tunnel release, device means an endoscopic, all the numbers you see in front of you, the only statistically significant number was a grip strength was 79% to three weeks compared to 62% using an open carpal tunnel release. Now I ask you, is that biologically significant when every other number here is insignificant? Pinch strength, that wasn't, wasn't any different, nor was grip strength any different at six weeks, three months, or six months. So there you go. Yeah, some, but in the paper, we said you'd be stronger earlier with an endoscopic release. My name's on that paper. I didn't make that statement, but that statement is, is, stands in that paper. The same paper looks at, looks at scar tenderness. Say, oh my goodness, if I do your operation endoscopically, you will have, you'll have less scar tenderness. Well, scar tenderness was rated on a scale from zero to four, zero was no tenderness and four was very tender. At three weeks, at nine weeks, 12 weeks, you know, all around, nothing was statistically significant. But at nine weeks, there was a statistically significant difference in scar tenderness between endoscopic and open release. But let's look at the numbers. 0.4 for endoscopic carpal tunnel release at nine weeks and 0.8 for open carpal tunnel release at nine weeks. And so what can you say about that? Be very careful what you say in a paper. The scar tenderness was twice as much with an open carpal tunnel release than with an endoscopic carpal tunnel release early on. Now, this paper has a little disclaimer that it was funded by 3M, the maker of the endoscopic carpal tunnel release device. No surprise. I stopped doing endoscopic carpal tunnel release, but that's a whole nother talk I'm happy to give you someday. So how about wrist fractures? Now that plastic surgeons are doing more wrist fractures these days than in the past. You know, Avram Colley said the wrist will at some remote period gain perfect freedom in all its motions. Uh, another bit of dogma at the time, and a little bit of dogma that I grew up with during my residency. Well, the pendulum has swung. Uh, went from casting to external fixation to dorsal plating and now volar plating. So here's dogma also. Should you cast a patient? Should you X-fix a patient? Or should you plate a patient? How about how do you classify patients with their fracture? This is the AO. For those of you who don't know what AO stands for, it stands for always operate. Uh, it's a Swiss organization that defined fracture management. I'm only kidding there, but anyway, <laughs> they classify fractures very seriously. Now, I I challenge anyone on this on this listening to this talk that they would tell me, oh, 
I'm going to treat a B3 fracture doing this and this, and I'm going to treat a C2 fracture doing that and that. I can't even remember what, what one classification is for another. Classifications are dogma. Most of the time, they're supposed to categorize guide and guide treatment and predict outcomes. With distal radius fractures, look at all these classifications we have, and not one of them does what it's supposed to do. If you look at Cochrane, Cochrane collaboration is the most is the most valid way of looking at evidence-based medicine. It's very neutral, not funded by any industry. Uh, looking at studies, and this study looked at 48 randomized trials on the surgical management for treating distal radius fractures, and concluded there's no robust scientific evidence to support most of the decisions necessary to manage these fractures. And the problem associated with classification of fractures. Uh, featured here, linked to these is the issue of external validity or generalizability of the results of many of these single-center trials. Such results may not apply or apply to such a degree in other situations. So what I'm trying to say by that is if you see a distal radius fracture, you can say, well, Zabo says it doesn't matter whether you X-fix it or plate it. You know, the evidence-based medicine says it, it, it's the same. But again, that that most important word here is generalizability. Can you generalize all fractures being treated the same way? The answer is clearly no. I'm a very simple person uh, when it comes to classifications. So I made my own classification. I called it Eastwood classification of distal radius fractures. And uh, Clint Eastwood, famous, famous guy in my mind, he talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think that helps you classify things as to what you need to do. So an acceptable radiographic reduction is not associated with increased general physical or mental health, decreased degree of upper extremity disability, or increased satisfaction with outcomes than was an unacceptable reduction. If you take a meta-analysis of the outcomes of external fixation versus plate for distal radius fractures, there's no evidence to support the use of internal fixation over traditional external fixation. Ideally, we would like to take an evidence-based approach to how should we approach these distal radius fractures. Here we get into some problems with guidelines. If you look at this uh, a guideline from my own society, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in 2009, they were unable to recommend for or against operative treatment for patients over age 55 with distal radius fractures. But they were strongly able to recommend with moderate evidence the use of vitamin C for the prevention of disproportionate pain. Kind of hard to hang your hat on this or even, even believe it. Let's get back to this generalizability. So men are more apt to be mistaken in their generalizations than in their particular observations. Machiavelli. So here's a patient that I that I had the the um the privilege of taking care of after his first round with a surgeon. He was a 39-year-old left-hand dominant man who fell from a roof with an open fracture, pain and numbness in his median nerve distribution. And this is what I would classify as, as a Clint Eastwood bad fracture. So do you, you know, we'll go back to that. Do you need to fix it? Do you need to do anything to it? Do you need to internally fix it, externally fix it, put it in a cast? What should you do? So in the Supreme Court, um, came a statement uh, from um, Justice Potter Stewart to describe the threshold test for obscenity. 
so they were asked in the Supreme Court, like, how do you know, you know, if what you're looking at is pornography, if it's obscene? And the, and the response was, I know it when I see it. And sometimes you have to take that response when you're looking at something in medicine also. So a distal radius fracture like this, uh, one of my colleagues decided to put an external fixator on it um, and put some pins on it and told them everything was fine. But if you look carefully at that lateral x-ray, the x-ray over to your right-hand screen, you'll see there's a fragment sitting out there. And that fragment happens to be a piece of the articular surface of the distal radius. And the, the blue line there shows you the articular surface. And no matter what you're practicing, you know that that articular surface shouldn't be pointing in that direction. So I had to take, you know, what, what do you have to do? But you have to fix that. So I took it back and did some fragment-specific fixation. And then the patient did fine. So you just have to treat fractures of the distal radius um, with what they need to be fixed. That, the evidence still isn't there because the studies generalize and they dump everything into one category, all distal radius fractures. And when you generalize too much, there's a regression towards the mean. You have to be able to sort out things a little differently than that. So... How about, since we talked about evidence-based medicine, you have to talk, take into account patients' expectations and their values. And their values are what we're talking about. How do we make them happy? And Kevin Chung, um, a plastic hand surgeon, now currently the president of the Hand, so hand Society, American Society of Surgery of the Hand, he defines patient satisfaction is and says is highly dependent on intangible factors such as patients' underlying psychosocial state and their expectations rather than a scientific standard of the quality of care that they receive. So we all have patients who we are not so proud of what the result we achieved are, but they're very happy. And we have patients who we think we did a great job and they're not happy. So as a final resolve, I plead with you to avoid dogma. And in order to do this, you need to know the evidence, critically evaluate the evidence, Unmask the bias in the evidence. Beware of conflicts of interest. You know, even if it's your best teacher telling you this is a great product to use. Um, and by the way, I'm going out to dinner tonight with the guys that make this product. Don't be blinded by statistical significance when somebody says, but the p-value says this is really the thing to do. Evaluate how powered the study is. Don't be blinded by underpowered studies which then say that there is no significant difference because they didn't have enough numbers to show it to you. And acknowledge accurate observations. So Bernard Shaw said the power of accurate observation is commonly called cynicism only by those who have not got it. So remain cynical. It's okay. I'm from New York. I, I think you can remain cynical. In conclusion, the death of dogma is the birth of morality. Thanks very much for paying attention. Thank you, Dr. Zava, for being here today and giving us all something to think about. Um, I think this is a great discussion, and I really think valuable advice, not just for our audience who's interested in hand surgery, but you could actually apply it, some of the same concepts to other focus areas in plastic surgery as well. So this is great. Um, I also know a lot of knuckle crackers out there are probably thanking you right now for that study. <laughs> Any final thoughts that you have for us? Well, I want to I want to remind you that you know residencies and fellowships 
are apprenticeships with surgical techniques that are passed from one physician to another, usually having originated from the teaching of great prestigious pioneers of surgery. Often these techniques are based more on dogma than scientific evidence. And nowadays, dogmatic thinking may even come as practice guidelines, as I discussed, and protocols made by consensus, and even from interpretation of the results of prospective randomized studies. It's incumbent on each physician, each and every one of you, to ensure that, that your surgical decisions are evidence-based and not simply the result of adherence to surgical dogma. Very well said. Thank you, sir. Back to uh, also talking about the hand fellowships. I had one last question for you. In California, I know that in order for the residents or the fellows to be able to do a fluoroscopic exam with an attending president, they need a fluoroscopy license. Would you recommend anybody all over the country to get that regardless of where they're going to go now while they're in training and residency? Or would you have them just wait until they match into their fellowship? Well, I, I think it's a good idea to do it and take the test and get all the information to pass the test. The test is ridiculously hard, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's state by state. The license, the license that I have is for the state of California. Gotcha. So if you're going to do your residency in a different state. Um, it's not going to help you to be licensed here. Thank you. That's really helpful. And thank you again for being part of this podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure and subscribe, rate, and review us. We will continue bringing you weekly episodes addressing your life and education in plastic surgery. And don't forget, follow us on Instagram at The Loop Podcast to get in the loop. Thank you. Thank you.